You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Almira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. Well, it was uh, a year ago, this Sunday actually, that we started in the Gospel of Mark. And we took a few breaks here and there, but this is, I think, like the 36th or the 37th message. So thanks for hanging in there. You know, we actually only have about... 10 more weeks left, and then we'll be finished with the whole gospel. So um, we've learned a lot, and we've seen a lot of things in the book. And this Sunday, and I might have said this before if I did, I apologize. I think this passage is one of the most important in the whole book, okay? So this passage is so key to what Mark is trying to communicate in the whole book itself. And it's, it's also something that is so key for Jesus and his ministry. And so we want to carefully look at it this morning. Last year I read a book by John Dixon called Bullies and Saints. He's an Australian author. And he wrote and kind of chronicled history and the history of Christianity basically from after Christ's resurrection to now and highlighted all the great and the terrible moments of Christians. So that's why he called it bullies and saints, because we have a lot of like really terrible history to kind of contend with. And in his first chapter, he addressed one of the most shocking stories and a historical event where the Crusaders went to Jerusalem with a mind to liberate that city from the Muslims who were living there. And so these crusaders, from mostly from France, but other places in Europe, uh, took two years to kind of gather all their equipment and march down to Jerusalem. And when they got to Jerusalem, it was a city barricaded, ready for, you know, some type of resistance against all these, this army that was there. And so they spent a month kind of building ramparts and chipping away at the, at the walls. And eventually after a month, they busted through into Jerusalem. And when they got into Jerusalem, all the people, mostly Muslims, uh, rushed to the Temple Mount, which is still there to this day, this massive courtyard in the old city of Jerusalem. And the crusaders got into that area of the city, July 15th. 1099, that was the year. And they broke in and they decided, because of their fervor for their love for God, to massacre everyone that was in there. Killing men, killing women, killing children. The next day, 500 meters from that spot, that giant courtyard, which history has written was just covered in the blood of those victims who were there. The next day, on July 16th, in the Church of the Sepulchre, which is also still there, and you can go visit, like 500 meters away from where this event just happened, they all gathered together under Raymond of Aguirre. He was the leader. Raymond led them there to this giant worship service. And in this worship service, Raymond said this. He said, how they rejoiced and exalted and sang a new song to the Lord. That's what they sang the next day. 
And if you had met Raymond in Toulouse, the city where he lived and, and grew up with, if you like bum shoulders with him in the market, and you were like, hey, Ray, how's it going, man? You're talking, and you know, it's, it's 1,100 now, and you're like, Ray, I'm, I'm a Christian, and Raymond would be, I'm a Christian too. Do you know what we just did last year in Jerusalem? We liberated that city. I hope that you're thinking in your head, we are not worshiping the same God here, Raymond and me, right? Something is not jiving here. How can it be that people are committed to Jesus, committed to Christ, committed to Christianity, whatever it is, probably with a lot of other allegiances, and yet have such differing views on how that's actually to be lived out? That's why the passage this morning is so important. Because it addresses that issue head on. Not directly. We're not going to solve the problem of the Crusades, okay? There are other dark chapters in Christian's history that we're not going to solve this morning. We can't change the past. But what we're called to do and what we're trying to do in this series in Mark is to reshape our hearts. To reform our thinking and our desires after what Jesus is actually for. So that when something else comes along and starts to carry us away, that even has the name Jesus behind it, even has the title Christian behind it, we can see with clarity that that is actually not the way of Jesus. And so this morning, we are going to be looking in our text. And in Matthew's teaching of this text, Jesus actually says... Everything in the Old Testament hinges on this answer that he's going to give this morning. Everything. All the great stuff in the Old Testament, all the hard stuff that you don't know what to do with, and neither do I, and I've got like a bunch of books on my shelf that try to answer them. All that stuff hinges on Jesus' answer this morning in the text. So if you have a Bible or if you have a phone with the Bible app, or if you have data, download the Bible app, and let's look at Mark 12 together and see what Jesus says. And we're going to go through it section by section here. Mark 12, verse 28, one more time. The story starts like this. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he had answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? So we know that, you know, in chapter 12 here, we've been, it for, we've been in it for, what, four weeks now or something? It's all about questions, right? It's a Q&A time with Jesus, with differing motivations from different people. But here again, a scribe comes to Jesus and is asking him about the commandment. Now the scribes, if you don't know what the scribes do, the scribes were like the legal experts of the day. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the laws. There were 613 laws and like 365 of them were um, laws of like prohibition, things that you shouldn't do. So there was one for every day. And then there was 248 positive laws. And so people were always wondering like, what are the most important laws? Because that's 613. And then you've also got the Mishnah, which has 1,500 more laws. So there's a lot of laws and regulations. And so people would come to the scribes often and this, the scribes would debate with themselves which is the most important? Because there were some laws that were what they would call weightier and other laws that were lighter. 
So they're like, okay, first of all, which is the weightier and the lighter ones? But then they would often debate back and forth, what's the summary? Rabbi, what is the summary? 613 laws, 1,500 laws in the Mishnah, what is the summary? One rabbi who lived about 20 years before Jesus, Rabbi Hillel, he said this when asked that question, what you would not want done to you, do not do to your neighbor. This is the essence of the law. Everything else is mere commentary. So he says, this is how I'm boiling it down. The rest is just kind of added fluff. And so this is what the scribe is doing when he comes to Jesus. He's asking a question that, you know, this isn't new to Jesus. This probably would have happened to Jesus before. And this wasn't new to the tradition of the scribes and the rabbis. They were into this kind of debate to try to get to the bottom of what is the most important law. And so here's what Jesus answers in verse 29. Jesus answered, The most important law is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus answers the scribe's question by quoting what is known as the Shema. Maybe you've heard that phrase before, the Shema, which is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're just going to quickly look at this really important passage, especially to the, to the Jewish mind, still to this day, extremely important to, to understand the place and the meaning of the Shema in the life of Israel. So the great Shema is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we're just going to read a few verses to see where Jesus is pulling this out of. So starting in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6, it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them on you as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So in Deuteronomy 6, it gives clear instruction to the children of Israel to take this Shema, which is a reminder and put it in places that would regularly, like physically remind them about God's oneness and God's goodness. And so the Shema is still to this day tied on, you'll maybe see this if you see images of Jews praying at the Western Wall. They'll tie it on them and they'll tie these little boxes that have portions of the Shema in it. Or maybe you'll walk into a, a Jewish home and you'll see on the doorpost um, mezuzah, which has the great Shema written inside of it, and they'll touch it on their way in. It's a reminder for people who are forgetful, right? It's a reminder for a nation that was freed from bondage and from slavery, and it's to remind them that God is their God. And I don't know about you, but I'm super forgetful. I'm, I forget all kinds of things. I have an app on my phone that is uh, OmniFocus, which is like, that keeps me alive, basically, right? I wouldn't have a job if I didn't have that thing because I just forget all kinds of stuff. 
You can talk to my family. They know I forget, like, way more than I should. I need reminders, right? I need an app to help me get through my life. But I'm also forgetful even of the things when it comes to my relationship with God. When difficulty comes into my life, even when joy and good things come into my life, I forget that it's actually God who's my maker, God who's the one who has given me freedom. God is the one who keeps my heart beating while I'm on stage here. And so this Shema is actually the the great reminder app for the people of Israel. It is their reminder to know that God is unique and God is not to be forgotten, that they are to be his people. This is a reminder that coming out of Egypt, they came out of a polytheistic country, right? A nation that worshipped all kinds of gods. And now God has brought them out. Jehovah God has brought them out. And now God says, this is a reminder that I am one. I am one God. But it's not just a reminder that God is singular and that this is a, like, this is a new thing. This is a monotheistic religion out of you know, all the pantheistic or all the gods out there. Now you're going to be a monotheistic religion. It's like a new thing, which it kind of was. But it's more than that, actually. It's this idea that God is unique. That the love that he gives to us and the love that we give to him is exclusive So this is not like, you know, 1960s, 70s, like hippie love or something, okay? Like love everything. Or this isn't like our modern day version of like love is love and just love everything. This is actually super radical. This is exclusive love, singular God, Jehovah God. He's the source of our love and he's where our primary love goes. And so this Shema is the reminder for them. This commandment that Jesus gives to love God is that very reminder. William Lane puts it this way, to love God in the way defined by the great commandment is to seek God for his own sake and to have pleasure in him and to strive impulsively after him. Lane is saying, listen, This is what the great commandment is, that we are called to love God with our full being. That God has loved us, and now in return, the reminder, the great commandment is that everything we do, everything we do actually in life now as believers, is driven by this love that is firstly directed to God. That he can actually satisfy in that way. Let me ask you, have you ever experienced that? The love of God in that way? Maybe you think, I can only experience that like with someone, maybe like my spouse or my, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend, or maybe like that someone special someday. I'm I'm assuming someone's coming, you know. Maybe you think that you can only experience that in a human relationship. Well, the Bible reminds us that you can actually experience that kind of love relationship with God, the God of the universe. And it's actually what we're invited into. It's what we're called to. So if you haven't experienced it, the whole point of this passage is that you will be invited into that. That you will come near into it. You'll experience something maybe that you've never experienced before in your life. And so Jesus says, the way that you do that is by experiencing the love of God in all aspects of your life. You see what he says there? 
with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And even before strength, he puts in there with all your mind, which isn't even in the Deuteronomy 6 text. Jesus adds that in there, probably for the scribe who's there. For the scribe who's thinking, who's always trying to analyze the questions and get the answers. Jesus says, all these areas, even your mind, your intellect, give everything to God. Pour your love into every area of your life. And so we too are called to do that. And in our world, especially in our Canadian world, people are not used to that, right? Like people are used to the secular, sacred, secular divide. You might be a Christian. Keep that personal, man. You do that on Sunday. That's great. Maybe you even like tell people at work that you're a Christian, but keep it safe. That is your sacred space. Don't kind of blend it into other areas of your life. The more you do that, what happens? The more alien you become to people. And especially as our Canadian society is steeped in secularism, like this isn't new. We're 50 years into secularism in Canada, so it's not new. The more you commit these different areas of your heart, of your strength, of your mind, the more you commit that to God, the stranger and stranger you become. Now, not like, not like Ned Flanders weird, right? <laughs> okay, we're not going there. Not that kind of weird, but strange in that your primary affections, the choices you make in life, are driven by your love for God. It just changes the priorities in your life. It changes what you can do, what you choose to do on like a Sunday morning when it's a beautiful day. You know there's people out on the golf course right now just enjoying a great round. I don't do golf, but whoever does golf, right? You know that they're out there and you're choosing the choices of your life are actually different. And it's driven by a love for God. And this is not meant to be just a religious drive. It's actually meant to be sourced in, in your heart, in the innermost being. And so the Greek actually, which you don't have in your Bible, but the Greek actually helps us in this, in this instance because the prefix to each of these words before, you know, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength, the prefix to all those is the little prefix X, E-X. And that little prefix means that it's sourced from within you. So we still have it on the word exhale. So you take a deep breath in and you exhale. That is breath coming from your innermost being and out and the reason why that's important is because Mark is saying with that specific word, your love for God is not just something external to you. It's not just a piece of religion that you put into action. It's not just like a hammer that you grab and you, you're like, I just, I love God. I have to do this thing. Mark's saying, no, it is sourced within you in the innermost place. The place where you choose devotion, the place where you choose love, the place where your most innermost choices are made, that's where the love is to be sourced. When I was in Austria this summer, we were in this uh, amazing little town called Hallstatt, right beside a, a huge uh, mountain. And when we were driving there, the people that we were going with, they said, hey, there's one thing that's really cool about this town is there's a fountain at one point and there's like a, 
a little pipe that's sticking out, and fresh water is coming straight out of the heart of the mountain. So we always bring like empty water bottles and then we fill it up with this fresh water. So I was like, hey, that sounds cool, you know. So we get to this place. We stop. I might even have a picture. I can't remember. Um, and we had our water bottles. And there like is this kind of gnarly looking pipe, you know. It was like, some people might be like, that's kind of gross. But it was just like hanging there, probably 100 years old or something. And the water is coming out. So we empty our city water empty all that stuff that's been, you know, there's all kinds of stuff in it to try to clean it or whatever. We put our bottles under there, fill it up, and we just start drinking it cold. It was almost like sweet. They put sugar in it in the mountains, right? It was sweet water. It just tasted so refreshing from the heart of the mountain. That's the image here of what Mark is trying to get us to understand. When he says, love God, this is not out of duty. This is not out of religion. It's out of relationship. It's out of a heart. It's pure. And the only way we get that pure heart is actually having our hearts changed. So if you haven't had your heart changed by the gospel and by Jesus, you won't even understand what that is. But a pure heart of love to God, it doesn't come from the inner will of Darcy picking some kind of religious activity up. It comes from a changed heart, a new source. And so Mark says... X, this inward source, this heart, this drive actually comes from a relationship and knowing God. And so he says, love God from a deeply personal place. And it is really easy for us to lose that, isn't it? It's easy for us to lose our first love. You may have seen like newlyweds or something who are just like all lovey-dovey and then you're like, yeah, just give them five months, right? Or give them five years. They're going to lose that. You know, it's going to lose some steam. It's because we know that that happens. You know, the busyness of life comes in and unless you continue to actively pursue that love, you will lose steam. It'll just kind of run away. And in Revelation, Jesus writes seven different letter, letters to different churches. And to Ephesus, he says this. Listen to this. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you, are, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You've persevered and you've endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Doesn't that sound like a great church? That sounds like an amazing place to be. They've got it together, man. They are doing the right stuff. They have it all in place. Continue on. What does he say? Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. That love that you had without all the programs, with all the stuff not even running properly. But now you've got it all together. You've got the whole religion thing working but you have no love for me. And Jesus is saying, repent, turn. You got this all wrong, man. It's not about the activity that we're doing. The activity comes out of the source, which is love for God, love from God. So we are called to love God. But Jesus goes on and he adds a second part to this commandment. Look at verse 31. Verse 31 says this. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater, there is no commandment greater than these. So Jesus then says, 
So he says, love God with all your heart. Now he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And in this case, he's quoting Leviticus 19. And in Leviticus 19, there's a whole bunch of, there's a whole section on what to do with your neighbor. I included a few verses here just to to see what it's saying. In Leviticus 19, verse 17, it says, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor, frankly, so that they will not share, you'll not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. So all those things are great. But Jesus says now, love your neighbor as yourself. There's the summary. Love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 18. Some people would think, man, I need to know more about God. Or maybe I need to to do more for God. Maybe I need like just an increase of everything. But Jesus is saying, here's what you're called to do. Love God and love your neighbor. Love God and love your neighbor. In Luke's gospel, in his telling of this story, Luke actually includes a little bit more to what Jesus said. So Jesus has this interchange with the scribe. And then the scribe says, well, who's my neighbor? And then he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, which many of us are familiar with that story. Jesus says, here's how it looks in practicality. So love God, the great Shema, and love your neighbor. Here's how it looks. There's a story about a man who is robbed. He's beaten up. He's left for dead on the side of the road, probably stripped. Everything's taken from him. And a priest looks and passes by, keeps going. And then a Levite walks up. Another kind of religious category. Looks, sees what's happening, moves on. And then finally, a Samaritan comes. And if you know the story, you know that the Samaritans are like long-term enemies of the Jewish people. They're like this breakaway offshoot that Israel didn't even, you know, they wish it didn't even exist. And here then the Samaritan stops and helps the man who is wounded and left on the road. And what Jesus is trying to get them to see is that the mercy that their enemy is showing to a fellow countryman is actually what they are called to do. And so he says in Luke 10, 37, the one who showed him mercy is the one who did the right. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. That is your calling, to act out love in that way, to show love to your neighbor. And there are some principles in this text that I just want to quickly highlight because we might also be asking the same question, who's my neighbor? Who am I supposed to show love to? Is it the person who lives literally right beside me? Is it the person who is just interacting with me, who's maybe different from me? Or is it like Jesus is highlighting the total extreme, the person who is my enemy? And in this text in Luke, we see four things that I just want to quickly highlight as our time is rolling along here. It's a template in many ways for loving our neighbor. And the first is this, practice compassion. The Samaritan actually, and it says it in the Luke text, that he had compassion on the man. The Samaritan actually had a heart that was soft, that could still feel something, that would still, when, when injustice and wrong was before him, could still be broken, could still feel compassion. Selfishness 
and hatred. And we've often seen even religion can actually harden your heart. It's self-preservation that is number one priority. And here we see the heart of the Samaritan is one of compassion. Second to this, though, is practicing presence. It says that the Samaritan stopped. So the other guys, the priest, the Levite, they're like, I would love to help you. I'm super busy doing really important things. I'll help on my way back. I'll come and help you, like, just bleed out in the shade, maybe, you know. And here the Samaritan is actually stopping. Space in our lives to be able to actually stop. And we live in this modern, busy day and age where we can all be busy to like 99%. You know, we can all have lots to do and we can just drive into our driveways and into our garages and the door closes behind us. But finding moments of presence. Do your coworkers, do your neighbors feel that you're someone who can actually pause, who can actually stop. And in that moment, you'd actually listen to whatever it is that's coming up, valid or invalid. Are you known as someone who can practice presence? The third is this, practice sacrificial love. So it says that the Samaritan remember the story, he takes the man, loads him up on his donkey, brings him to an inn, and pays for him, bandages him up, and pays for him to actually be there. He takes something that is his own, his own finances, his own time, the, the gas for his donkey, right? All that stuff, he takes it, and he uses it for the good of someone else. And so this idea of self-sacrificing, sacrificing our time and our talents and our finances for the good of the other, for the good of someone else, is actually built into this text so that we can actually put that into practice. And then the last is practice long-term love. So the Samaritan helps him on the day, but then it says, I know this is going to take longer. These wounds won't just go away. They'll take days, weeks, maybe months to heal. He says, I'm coming back, and in the future, I'm going to settle the debt. I'm going to pay the rest of it. We live in a tension as Christians of walking with people, with our neighbors, with our friends, with people who don't know Jesus, who are in our lives, and knowing that it takes time for people to process and to, to even understand what it means to follow Christ. And at the same time, we also know that we, we are all here for a finite amount of time. Any one of us, on any given day, it could be our last day. And so we're constantly like in this wrestle of like there is time to invest in people's lives and there's possibly no time. I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And so we've got to keep that in mind of investing and loving people and serving them for years and years. And I'm old enough now where I know people, you know, that I've known for like multiple decades. I've got still some friends in Montreal where I went to high school. I graduated. I know some of you guys weren't even married. I graduated in 1995. Some of you weren't even born then. I've known some of my friends for a long time. God isn't finished with me yet. And God isn't finished with my friends yet. 
in those relationships? And am I going to be there continually planting seed, planting seed as God does the watering? So love God, love your neighbor. And finally, let's close with this. The actual point that makes the difference is verses 32 and 34. And I think this is actually the, one of the points of the whole passage. So love God, yes. Love your neighbor, yes. But now look at these verses, verses 32 to 34. 32 says this, And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. You hear what he's saying? And do you remember where he's standing? Most of chapter 12 is Jesus at the temple, on the grounds there. Just imagine it. This huge temple gleaming, marble and gold, dedicated to sacrificing, smoke going up, lambs being killed, birds being killed for the sacrificial system. And now the scribe is saying, you summarize the law. You're absolutely right. Love God, love my neighbor. And if that's true, Jesus then this whole system that we are standing around is for nothing. Because God is actually doing something greater than the religion that we see around us. God is doing something more than that. And so Jesus then says to him, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And look at the last sentence. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. So Jesus says, scribe, you're seeing it. You're starting to see it clearly. You're starting to see what I'm about, that I'm the Messiah, that I'm actually coming to do something that supersedes this earthly system. You're not far from the kingdom of God. But here is the thing that catches the scribe, possibly, and those who are following him. They stopped asking questions. Nobody dared ask any more questions. I don't know if they were like afraid or maybe Jesus with his teachings was getting at places where they were getting uncomfortable, but they stopped doing the very thing that we should continue to do and that is pursue Jesus. Keep going towards Jesus. Keep driving at it. And Mark is recording this specifically in a way where there's no conclusion. Have you noticed that? We don't know what happened to the scribe. Jesus just says he's close. And so Mark has been writing this to believers and to people who are struggling with Jesus' teaching. And he's writing it in a way that leads them right to the edge where there should be a conclusion. And Mark's saying, I'm not actually going to include the conclusion. And the reason I'm not is because each and every one of us are standing on that edge when it comes to our walk with Jesus. We all walk in some sort of a fog when it comes to Jesus. None of us have full clarity. So Mark is saying, in your fog, are you going to keep walking? Or are you just going to stop there? You're going to stop on the edge. Just like the scribes and the Pharisees stopped and nobody asked any more questions. You see, we're called as Christians and we're called with our friends and our neighbors to lead them, to show them Jesus and to help them to kind of take those next steps. 
And I've sat down with a number of people over the years debating Christianity, talking about hard things, and tried my best to kind of answer questions and, and do what I can. But often I've ended the conversation with this. I can't answer all your questions. Here's what I want, want to encourage you to do. Go after Jesus. Read the Gospels. You for yourself, don't stop here. Keep going. In Matthew 11, Jesus has been doing miracles and he's been healing people. And he says this, Woe to you, Corazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For I did miracles and performed many things. And if I had done them in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. Jesus is like, I've shown you all this stuff and you're not turning. You're just staying. And then he says, I am sent by my Father. And so he's saying, this is who I am. Then Jesus says this in verse 28, which is our calling as well. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You know what makes the difference between us and Raymond a thousand years ago? Is we can't be satisfied with the vision that we have for Jesus today. We have to follow his teaching where he says, come, keep coming. You're confused in this area. You've let go in this area. You haven't even like thought about me at all. His response to you is, come, come to me. And in that process of coming, you will not find perfection, but you will find rest for your soul. And so that's our calling today. Will you join me in praying? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this story. Thank you for the testimony of this scribe who asks a question and seeks to know who you are. And Lord Jesus, I pray that we too will be a people, will be a church that pursues you and comes to you and that we find our greatest love and fulfillment in you that can then be shown to our neighbors and to those who you bring us in contact with. Thank you, Jesus, for opening our eyes to these truths. In his name we pray. Amen.